Well, good morning. It's great to be here and to be seeing you. This bandana mask has been my signature during COVID. When masks weren't available, I was able to buy 24 of these, and so this became something that I've worn. It was a bit weird, I have to admit, walking into the police station with one of these on and uh, walking in like this, you know, like I was going to draw on them. Uh, when I showed up for appointments on a regular basis, when I wasn't wearing this, they didn't recognize me, they said. Uh, so this has become my signature mask. I mean, this is, we've got to have some fun during this time. It's, it's a difficult time, right? We just have to admit it's been terrible. It's bad on so many different levels and we need some levity. Wearing this bandana reminds me of my childhood days, playing cops and robbers, good guys and bad guys. Those were the days when we had a clear sense of right and wrong. Well, at least we thought we did. It was fun being the bad guy, but you could also be the bad, good guy, like the Lone Ranger, you know, wearing a mask, or like Clint Eastwood. But come to think of it, maybe it isn't so clear what is good and bad. This notion of right and wrong really strikes at the core of what it means to be a human being, though, even among the worst of us, presuming we could determine that. Let's draw straws and see who's worse. We all have a sense, a strong sense of justice. We are acutely aware when we're wronged and misunderstood, and when we see other persons wronged, it shocks and angers us. We have a conscience by which we live our lives and a code of conduct with which we judge others how they live their lives. We're hardwired for justice, I think. And when we see perceived injustice, we rightly are outraged. Whether it be police murders, violent protests, destruction of property, racial injustices, it sickens us. And two wrongs don't ever make it right. And so we're stuck at an impasse. So who, gets, who owns the definition of justice? Who will decide between different versions of justice? And we are, in fact, prejudiced in our justice. We extend mercy to our own folks, but then we pronounce judgment on others. We must remember, as I've heard it said, that justice is never about just us. We thus need to consider each other, friends and neighbors, and especially enemies and strangers. But because we have differing views and competing views of justice, we need, as C.S. Lewis so argued so well. We need an arbiter, a tertium quid, a third perspective to help adjudicate our wrongs and our rights. So who has the authority to claim the definition? Obviously it's Jesus, whose Sermon on the Mount, if nothing else, is a sermon about righteousness. And we'll come to that momentarily. But first I've been captivated by Isaiah's third vision in chapter 60, read so well. Thank you, Jess. In fact, it was a Facebook post on this that prompted our dean of the chapel, Jessica, to ask me to preach this morning, and I'm grateful. And I've not preached here for a while, so I've got a lot here, so hold on to your seats. Because I want to connect some dots across the Testaments from Isaiah to Jesus to Paul about what it means to be God's people in today's climate of COVID, in just and unjust outrage and political turmoil. It's a mess, and we all know it. Brothers and sisters, we need to shine now more than ever before. Structurally, the book of Isaiah builds to this climax in chapter 60. 
this vision of Zion arising and shining with salvation, praise, and the end of mourning, and God's presence fully experienced. But Isaiah begins with an initial statement of the problem way back in chapter 1. There Isaiah offers an initial blistering critique of sinful, um, actually I think that's the slide, of, of sinfulness, exposing their sinfulness, and then bearing the consequences of this. They have corrupt leaders, and they don't realize that their religious <clears throat> practices like sacrifices and prayers only hide the real extent of their spiritual poverty. And despite their religiosity, God, the Lord, is not listening to them. But right here, right at this moment, the text slows down with a battery of commands that outline the solution. Stop doing wrong. Repentance. Learn to do what is good. And then seek justice. Defending the oppressed, taking up uh, the cause of the fatherless, the orphans, and pleading the case of the widows. There's a threefold process of stop, learn, and grow. And later we'll see glow. We're to glow. Then the Lord says, come, let's argue it out. And he promises that despite their sins being crimson red, he will make them white as snow. And this all concludes with a set of alternative responses. So even though God is providing this solution, this cleansing of our sins, we still have a response to make. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here Isaiah the prophet models sober prophetic truth-telling and confrontation, a call for human response of repenting, learning what is right, and doing justice, and God's promise of a solution to somehow undo the red stain of our sin. But then there's a continued opportunity to either obey or to continue to rebel. He never forces us one way or the other. And God surprisingly invites us to argue it out with him, as the NRSV says. You know, I think we were used to the NIV, which says, come, let us reason together. NRSV says, let's argue it out. No wonder Isaiah is the longest book of the Bible. Because we're like arguing with God for 66 chapters. I mean, the only longer book is Psalms, with 150 chapters. But both Isaiah and the Psalms join with Deuteronomy as being the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. Isaiah and Psalms both plumb the depths of our struggle with justice and God's making things right. What we call by the fancy word theodicy. So how is God right? Theos and dike. How is God making things right? Really, all of Scripture is about theodicy. How is God righting the wrongs of the world? Our world even my world right now. Scripture reveals us God's theodicy, his way of making this right, and the centers in Jesus and the gospel, and he teaches us to stop, learn, and grow. Now Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, we're also introduced to daughter Zion, that she is like a shelter, a hut, and is a city under siege, what is Zion? Well, it's a complex idea, sometimes referring to a physical location like Jerusalem. But then also Zion is the cosmic place from which God rules. And the daughter of Zion is thought to be the city itself or the people 
But I think particularly here, daughter Zion represents a faithful remnant who are hunkered down a city under siege. But I'm guessing that Zion may evoke another image more popular from a certain movie series. Maybe you've heard of it called The Matrix, where Zion is the underground place of refuge against the computer-generated virtual world above, a world literally powered by the life of blissfully ignorant human souls reduced to warm bodies and cocoon units. I've just spoiled the movie for you, so you don't need to watch it. Now, there is a powerful analogy here, because in fact, our world systems in which we live, move, and breathe are in fact, in many ways, virtual, not really real. This COVID situation has in some sense unmasked them. A pervasive deception is occurring, and we as people are influenced and plagued by underlying ideologies and hidden agendas and worldviews that call for our complete attention, participation, and even allegiance. And these ideologies and worldviews and personal beliefs may be quite at odd with God's kingdom and Jesus. In fact, it's for this reason that Paul in Romans 12.2 commands us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the Greek command forms used here are present tense. Now you know I was going to bring up Greek. They're present tense. And so we could add, you know, stop being conformed. Stop be being conformed. What this implies is that there's an ongoing and pervasive need to stop being conformed, which is a default. In other words, if we do nothing contrary, intentionally contrary to this influence, this pervasive influence, we will conform. We'll be conforming to this age, so powerful is it. So we need to stop, learn, and grow. In fact, a pervasive evil influence is continually the context of our mission and witness and Christian living. And I think we've become deaf and dumb to it. Our world has become so humanistic to think that evil is simply a construct to be merely educated out of us. But for believers, we should constantly be aware that evil is present even in the Lord's Prayer that comes to us in its climax. Deliver us from the evil one, which is sadly, simply, we've been taught to say, deliver us from evil, as, as if this is simply a moral evil. No, it's much worse than that. Indeed, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, at the very center of it, he says, protect them from the evil one. And this prayer, this was found by one of my students. He was studying to be a nuclear engineer at Notre Dame and then became a ministry student. And he found this intricate structure. And this is the very center of the prayer. And the whole prayer builds to this moment and then builds its way back out. It's called a chiasm. Notice that this is in the context of being in the world and mission. Jesus leaves us in the world. He gives us the word, the truth, which sanctifies us. And we have this profound need for protection. But returning to the Matrix, I'm a sci-fi guy. There's this John Carpenter science fiction movie, not worth mentioning its name, it's a B kind of movie, that powerfully, however, portrays the pervasive, subtle messaging of sinister aliens that have taken over the world. In order to see this, however, one needed to have a pair of glasses to recognize them and their messaging. In fact, the protagonist 
for the protagonist, it took a, an alley fight. He's fighting with this guy. He wants him to put these glasses on. And it's an uncomfortably long fight, like five, ten minutes. It's going on. And the guy's like, no, I don't want to wear the glasses. And he's like, you got to wear the glasses. And finally, he puts them on. And as soon as he puts them on, he can see the aliens, and he can see the billboards that they have an underlying message of not just simply buy the car, but be materialistic. Not just there's the pretty woman, but be lustful. And he starts seeing all this signage and recognizing the depth of the problem. Brothers and sisters, it's time to put on God's glasses. It's time to adopt God's view of things as revealed in Jesus, our political ruler. Now, as Isaiah continues, it's clear that the Lord expects justice and righteousness from his people. And it breaks his heart when they do not. For example, in 121, Isaiah says, See how this faithful city has become a harlot. She is once full of justice and righteousness. But, and righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. The problem is whom we look to as our leaders. In Isaiah, it is a fundamental and religious political problem. Indeed, all of scriptures is so fundamentally political, and God has so ultimately revealed himself as a political figure, a Messiah, a King, Jesus. And we can't ignore it, since it's God's message to us that his kingdom has come with Jesus. And once again, let me say it. Who gets to define justice? And who will lead God's people? Well, the Hebrew word justice, mishpat, means to make right judgment in terms of having the right view of things, offering the appropriate judgment or punishment to those injuring others, and rectifying a situation that, such that injured parties are vindicated and restored. So a right view, a right punishment, and a restoration of the injured parties. That's justice in a biblical sense, mishpat. Now righteousness is closely related, but I'll get to that momentarily. By tracing these words, justice and righteousness, across Isaiah, one realizes the nature and extent of the problem and God's solution. It's a leadership problem. God offers restoration in 126 to 27. He says this, I will restore your leaders in the days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called ones with righteousness and a city of righteousness, a faithful city and Zion will be delivered with justice, and her penitent ones with righteousness. So God expects justice, and we need it, and this is a match made in heaven. But our human condition is such that, as we see throughout Isaiah, there's a cycle that we encounter of sinning, consequences, prophetic confrontation, and God's solution being offered. Now this cycle culminates in Isaiah 59, right before the vision of Arise and Shine. Isaiah 59, 1 through 15, the first 15 verses give a litany of sins to which God sees and concludes, quote, there is no justice. Also, there's, this, there's no appropriate leader. There's no intercessor, it says, no mediator. So in response, what happens? Isaiah indicates that it's God's arm, that is the Messiah, that brings salvation and offers loving kindness to his people. Moreover, this arm wears the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, pieces of armor that the apostle argues 
believers should wear in at least three, three different places. This is messianic armor. This is God's armor for us, tried and true. Then concluding Isaiah 59, the Lord describes his covenant solution. He says, this is the covenant. Quote, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those of Jacob who repent of their sins. My spirit is on you, and it will not depart from you. And the words which I have placed on your lips will, not be, uh, will always be on your, in your lips, and on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants. And from this time on forevermore, says the Lord. So spirit, word of God, continually being on the lips. Folks, Paul quotes this very passage in Romans 11. This is God's solution to our problem. This is the redeemer of Jesus. He is God's light and glory that allows Zion to rise and shine. By gazing at Jesus, Paul says, we're being transformed into greater and greater glory. It's time to stop, learn, grow, and glow. Now today in the U.S., but also across the whole globe, we're in a climate where we expect our governments to be the solution to our problem. But governmental systems, be they capitalism, socialism, Marxism, anarchy, or any other, or any instantiations of political parties, be they Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Progressive, they're all a part of the problem. And inasmuch as we look to them as solutions, we are deceived and distracted from God's solution. God's solution then and now comes to us in the form of a humble servant, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, upon whom the Spirit will rest. He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge on appearance. That's all too easy for us to do. We judge on appearance. Nor will he knee-jerk simply by what he hears. This is Isaiah 11.3. But rather, quote, with righteousness, he will judge, give judgment for the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth, 11.4. Again, we see the centrality of justice and righteousness. Indeed, as 9.6-7 says, the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. This anointed leader comes to us as a suffering servant in the person of Jesus. He is the king of God's people. He brings with him God's kingdom, and he sets the standard of justice and righteousness, and he casts the vision of what it means to be God's people in the world, even our world, and especially in our world right now. Jesus reveals that God's kingdom work stands above from, apart from any human political solution. So why would we fight with our brothers and sisters over earthly politics when we ought to be aligned most fundamentally to a different politics altogether? You see, right now, Jesus and his outpouring of the Spirit in our human space is mobilizing a people to embody the vision of Zion right here and now. The letting of God's kingdom come now as we pray as the Lord taught us, let your kingdom come, let your will become on earth as it is in heaven. We're members of a Jerusalem above that is free, as Paul says. And we have come, perfect tense in Greek, uh, meaning it's attained with ongoing effects. And I continue to quote here, we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, as the author of Hebrews says in 12.22. This is our governing reality. This is our vision. 
It counters the common adage, perhaps you've heard it, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Actually, it's just the opposite. It's because we're so heavenly minded that we can be earthly good. Now, Jesus prepares his followers to be Zion in the Sermon on the Mount as he laid out his vision of righteousness. The sermon features righteousness in general statements across it. It's quite unfortunate that we have debated whether righteousness is something imputed as a verdict or imparted as a virtue. All along, we've failed to recognize that righteousness is fundamentally a social ethical concept that speaks to morally upright behavior. The term that we often see translated as righteousness was in fact, so dikeosune, was in fact the same word that the Greek philosophers and thinkers used in political discourse for justice. It's translated as justice. One of their four cardinal virtues and a critical formative goal of society to produce virtuous flourishing citizens. So inherently the concept of righteousness and justice are ethical and relational. Not just vertically as if it's all about us and God, but horizontally in relating to one another as public as a public virtue. In fact, I prefer to understand righteousness as rightly relating to one another. This definition works really well. So God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, by which is meant not, that not only does God uphold and maintain just standards and condemn sin as sin, he does that, but he also provides Jesus as a way forward to forgive and to show us a better way to live in the world. So in the gospel, both God's justice of maintaining right standards and his righteousness in rightly relating to his creatures is revealed. So it's fitting, especially, that Jesus begins the Sermon of the Mount with the Beatitudes. Now, I used to approach these Beatitudes as a pick and choose, smorgasbord of virtues. But in fact, they build climactically to peacemaking and persecution. In fact, you need poverty of spirit, humility. You need mourning over one's sin. You need meekness and thirsting for righteousness, mercy and purity for the climactic calling and virtue that we're all called to, to be peacemakers. Why? Well, peacemaking is trying to reconcile opposing parties, people at odds with themselves and with God. But this is why the Beatitudes moves to being persecuted, because peacemaking will necessarily involve truth-telling, calling out the wrongs in the parties. And people, we don't like that. We don't like it when people point out our problems. And so Jesus indicates that his disciples should expect to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, like the prophets before them. And so we are sober, wise as serpents, yet innocent. We are light in the world. And Jesus, right here, likens his followers to a city sitting on a hill for all to see, the daughter Zion present in the world. And it's precisely here in the Sermon of the Mount of righteousness that our human calling and purpose to be light in the world, to lead people to see and to praise God in 516, it's right here, that this is placed right next to Jesus's purpose in 517 to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he urges us to embody a surpassing righteousness, a way of rightly relating with one another that is true, honest, humble, courageous, and full of love and captivating, captivated by God's vision 
of justice and righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we need to shine right now. Whether it's in the ER nurse working extra shifts and helping clean up after riots in downtown Atlanta, or the single mother raising her daughters and helping them find suitable husbands, or the, the sex addiction counselor helping people overcome their addictions in this age of addictions, or the police chaplain loving on these public servants, or the one joining in protest seeking a more just society. We all need to shine how God has called us to shine. And so let me just close by making one more connection from Isaiah to Jesus to Paul. See, Paul understood for us the need to wake up, like in the Matrix movies, to come out of our sleep and to be light. And I love how he concludes right here. He says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christ is shining on us so that we can shine and reflect his glory and be a light in the world. So in this time of chaos, brothers and sisters, time of chaos and confusion, we have a higher citizenship, a greater allegiance, a better political leader in Jesus who gazes down with justice and love upon us. He's become one of us, teaching us how to rightly relate to one another, to stop, learn, grow, and glow. And he wants us and hopes and even prays for us in John 17 that we would live differently in the world in alignment with truth and justice. To live beautifully, graciously, humbly, courageously, and faithfully. And as much as we may enjoy to fight and to be right, we must always look to Jesus who is God's tertium quid, this third perspective for us. And he's prepared the way and shows us the way to do this so that our human wills and divine will come together as a light for the world to see. And that's the invitation this morning with this table prepared for us, a chance for us to see the light and be the light. Christ is shining on us at this very moment as a humble servant, and it's time for us to rise and shine. Your Messiah has come, daughter Zion. Amen.